Today's reading is taken from the book of Isaiah, chapter 62, verses 1 to 12. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet, until her righteousness goes forth as brightness, and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness, and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You should be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more more be termed forsaken and your land no more be termed desolate. But you should be called, my delight is in her and your land married, for the Lord delights in you. And And your land shall be married, for as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your children marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set sentinels. All the day and all the night, they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest, and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm, I will not give your grain to be food, I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies, and foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored. But those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord, and those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes, behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. And there shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. The word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. Also with you. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing? See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. The Gospel of Christ. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Lord God, as you are present with us today, we ask your Spirit to help us to hear the word that you have for our lives. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning, everyone, again. It is my pleasure to be with you as some of the congregation is away on retreat. Little Trinity Church is a special place to me and to my husband, Matt, as this is the community, a place actually where we were married. Uh, The carpet was a different color, and blue is much better than red. So that's good. (laughs) Some things have changed. 
Um, it's also the community where um, I attended when I was a U of T student. Um, and for many years, the missions committee prayed for my family and I in our early adventures of ministry, and we needed and appreciated and thank you for those prayers. So I wanted to start today with a story a little bit back from that time. When I was a student um, at U of T at the St. George campus, not far from here, sometimes I would go off campus to go to the Eaton Center. Now we know that as the Young Dundas Square area. But I didn't grow up in Toronto, and so I, have found, I found when I was walking down Young Street that it was a little bit overwhelming to me. Just with all the people, the congestion, and even just the, the way people were dressed, it was all just a little bit different than I was used to. And I recall specifically that just south of Girard on Young Street, where Young Street Missions Evergreen used to be, I would literally physically cross the street because I felt uncomfortable with the people who were gathering outside that space. But then something interesting happened. In my second year of university, my campus fellowship invited the members to a prayer walk from that specific site at the Evergreen site. And so I attended that prayer walk, and that began a process of transformation for me. Uh, That summer, I actually joined an internship team at that site, and God began working in my life as I began to learn from and work with street youth. God enriched and expanded my view of how God loves people and loves the city. And I learned to be with these youth who I had not too long before been so scared of that I literally crossed the street to avoid them. I learned how to be encouraging without patronizing. And I learned to grow an understanding of the multiple barriers that those youth faced and continue to face, things that we now call intersectionalities, but they converged into these folks' lives such that they ended up at this drop-in center in the first place. And I also learned that there's some things that we can do to make people's lives better. Now that whole experience of transformation, of figuring out who I was and what I could do for and with people in the city and what God needed to do for and with people in the city, it took a little while to settle into my life. Um, At the time, my life was mostly framed by athletic and academic expectations But eventually, I ended up pursuing social work and later ordination. For full disclosure, I now work at Young Street Mission again. Um, And if you count that summer, it's my third time with them. Um, And this church, um, I'm not sure if you're aware, but this church is actually working with Young Street Mission as well through our community development team. Uh, That relationship is not under my purview. My role at Young Street Mission is program development and oversight. So it doesn't include church engagement. So today, while I come to you as a staff member of Monk Street Mission, I'm actually wearing my Anglican priest hat. Uh, I'm not coming specifically representing the mission. Um, I did, however, check in with the person who's speaking to those who are not here. 
um, to those who are on retreat. And I checked in on what Jesse was going to be talking about, and he was going to be talking about hospitality and communion and looking at a passage from Corinthians. And I do highly recommend that if you've got friends who are on that retreat, uh, that you reach out to them and see what resonated with them and what they're taking home from that, just as they check in with you what might come from today and being here. I chose a different passage, though. I chose the passage of Isaiah to focus on. Because this passage in Isaiah is a beautiful chapter that describes what an ideal city can look like. An ideal city in God's world is a place where there's no longer a need for lament. There's no more desolation or darkness. It's a place of light and hope and joy. It's also a passage that helps us to unpack a little bit What is it that God does to make such a city come to be? And what is it that we do in conjunction with God as God makes God's kingdom come? And so that's going to be our framework today, looking at this passage from Isaiah. What does God do and what do we do and then for what effect? So I'm going to start with a little context. Um, Two points here that might be helpful. First, I'm going to be assuming as we look at this Isaiah passage that the terms Zion and Jerusalem are kind of talking about the same thing and that they are both a place and a people. So don't get confused. Sometimes it says Zion, sometimes it says Jerusalem. It's about a space um, and uh, sometimes it's a collective, sometimes it's the land or people, but you're going to hear me use those terms interchangeably. Um, The second thing that we need to recognize in coming to this passage is that the focus here is on a collective. Land, city, a group of people. So this is a shift from how we often will come to the scripture because we come with our Western individual lens when we come to the scripture. So I kind of wanted to highlight that before digging in. Because probably if you've been around the church a little bit, you would have heard of redemption and salvation primarily as a personal relationship with Jesus and maybe even righteousness as personal acts that demonstrate our reconciliation with God. And what you're going to find in this Isaiah passage is the emphasis is more at a collective or community level of how God interacts with a group or a space. That doesn't diminish the personal, but it does take us back to another place that we don't often think about just because of where we live in our place and time now. So we're at the end of the book of Isaiah today. This is the third section of the prophet's writing, and it was written when they had returned back to the city of Jerusalem after exile. So they had been sent away for generations. They came back, and when they came back, It was in shambles. Okay, the city was not beautiful. The temple had been destroyed. The walls were not there. There's whole books describing how they restored the temple, the walls. If you read about Nehemiah, you're going to hear those stories. But that's when this was written, that same time. And so their expectation of what God's city, which was supposed to represent God's presence with them, was not aligned with what they saw around them every day. There was no security There was no sanctuary. Everything they thought was needed for a city was broken. And so let's start by seeing how God describes what God does to restore the city. And he does two things. He renames it and he restores it. 
So verses 2 to 5 talks about how God renames Jerusalem. He gives Zion a new name. It's a beautiful name. He describes it like a crown, describes it in terms of royalty, signifying to belonging to God. Isaiah actually describes God's gaze or way that God looks at this city of Zion as being how a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. Now let's uh, think about all the TV producers. That moment is the moment they always try to capture on the reality shows, right? Like just before she walks down the aisle, what does the person at the front look like, right? Or if you happen to be liking Hallmark movies, it's like when the two people realize that their relationship is more important than, I don't know, like the horse farm or the corporate job or whatever it is that's caused the conflict for the two people to be apart. It's like that moment when they realize this relationship is the most important. They're going to invest everything in this relationship and you are elating and rejoicing in this relationship. That is what this word means. That's the depth of joy when God gazes at us. And so the name we get, the name Zion gets, is sought out. And my delight is in her. That's how God looks at the city. And in case you miss the promise in these words, the text continues and actually says, the land shall be married. So this is a name that has a covenant promise of commitment attached to it. Now I wonder, when you think of the city of Toronto, what name or names you think of? And what might it take for all of us to see the city and its people with this kind of love that God looked at Jerusalem with? And if you take it more to the personal level, what does it mean that God looks at you with such delight? God renaming is a very powerful part of our identity, and this time of identity politics is worth spending some time reflecting devotionally in this area. But God doesn't just rename the city, God actually restores the city and its economic systems. If you turn to verses 8 and 9, we can see that there's a realignment of oppressive economic systems. There's a fixing of food security. There's an establishment of living wages. So all of God's restoration and redemption includes also these social and economic components of living together. See, Jerusalem's surrounding farmland was prime real estate, and it had been involved in several systems of economic oppression. Where the city would have been walled and would have had water and safety on the inside, the farmland was on the outside, right? And so in times of war, the farmers who garnered that land, they would not have eaten the food they garnered. They would not have been able to sell the food. In fact, they would most likely have been conscripted to feed the army that was sieging Jerusalem. And that would have still been in their memory because it was just the return from exile time. And not only that, but when they weren't under that kind of siege, if it was the, not the Babylonian time, but the Assyrian time, there were heavy taxes and tributes, and that was the burden on the farmers. 
And so when God says, I am restoring Jerusalem, and he describes this as a place of fair and just work practices where farmers eat their produce and aren't exploited by these foreign powers, and they can worship in safety, this is like an echoing of the redemption of slavery out of Egypt. This is about the salvation from a time of slavery, but this one being economic slavery. So God renames the city and restores the city, and it frees the city to be a place where people can eat and sow, and it says they drink wine they labored for, and where do they drink the wine? They drink it in the courts of the sanctuary. It's a place of joy, because that means there's freedom, and there's even the capacity to practice Sabbath, which means there's enough wages that you can take a day off, right? Think about all the pieces that have to go into place for that to come to pass economically. Now, if you live here in the city, you probably have at least one, if not many, experiences of the broken economic systems that we still have today. And I wonder which of those God might restore for us. You know, yesterday was the third National Day of Truth and Reconciliation. It's a remembrance that reminds us across not just the city, but this whole country, that we as a people set up systems of oppression that generationally harmed our indigenous brothers and sisters. We are complicit in systems of oppression and are now trying to figure out what we as settlers can do. Now, this passage was written well before the time of truth and reconciliation that we're in. But it does talk about oppressive systems that seem so big and so generational that people can't do anything about them. And yet God does. And then he calls God's people to work alongside him in the transformation. And so that's the second part. What are the people called to do? And the people are called in this passage of Isaiah to do two things, to call out and to clean up, to call out and to clean up. What do we do? We call out. Verses 1, verses 6 and 7, they describe the importance of speaking on behalf of the city's sake, of not being silent. There's actually an alliteration here, and it's like we are not to shush or be shushed. Now people are like, shh. No, no shushing, no being shushed. The voice says, I have set sentinels that they shall never be silent, taking no rest and giving God no rest until the city is as it should be, a place of light. Day and night, people are to put the Lord in remembrance. In other words, we are to remind God of who God is and what God has promised. This is a call to intercessory prayer. Now, as Anglicans, praying for our leaders, the welfare of the community that we live in, it's embedded in this, our Sunday liturgy. If you're new or you don't know that, we have patterns to the prayers we have, and those prayers include praying for the suffering and the marginalized. But outside of these gathered Sundays where we have that pattern— I wonder how much you cry out to God when you see injustice. It is so much easier to look the other way or 
I personally find it easier to complain or judge than to pray. So this passage personally speaks to me of my need to change my prayer practices. There's a call of participation here to prayer that anyone and everyone is to do. But it's not just limited to prayer. There's a second task in city building here, which is in verse 10, which is cleanup, or at least what I called cleanup. It says, we are called to go out through the gate, prepare the way for people who are not yet in the city to come to the city, to build the road, to clear the stone so that the obstacles are removed. You see, Isaiah didn't want the people of God to think that just because they returned to Jerusalem and then the walls would be there, that they would be secure, and that was enough. He didn't want them to think that God was that small because the goodness of God is not exclusively and eternally for people behind the walls. God wants all kinds of other people to come to that city. And so he says, go outside the gates and make that road functional again. Get rid of the stones. How do we do that today is a good question. If the city represents God's presence with us in relationship, what are the obstacles that are in the way for others to come? Certainly, yesterday's day of remembrance reminds us again of how historically we have not gotten this right. Our institutional history as a church is associated with the desolation of unmarked graves. May the Lord have mercy. And this road to reconciliation has many stones that need to be removed. And I, as a settler, am only slowly learning what my part is in that process. But we're also not getting it right in the present. What about all the people trying just to come to this city now, let alone come to church? The newest arrivals among us. The news was full of it this summer, wasn't it? While the city and the federal government argued about who should be paying for shelter, there were hundreds of people sleeping outside of Peter Street, which is the intake center for our shelter system. And do you know what happened? A couple of churches stepped in. A couple of churches took people in. One of them is still doing that for sure. It's pastored by a guy called Eddie, who happens to also be a YSM volunteer. 150 to 200 people a night are staying in his sanctuary while he is calling out to God, while he is calling out to the government, and he is trying to remove those bureaucratic and administrative stones that are on the road for these people so that they can know that they are not forsaken or forgotten. Isaiah spoke to the people who returned from exile to find Jerusalem in shambles, and Isaiah still speaks to us. Because God is in the business of renaming and restoring, and we are asked to call out to God and to clean up what we have capacity to clean up. And why? Why? Because the intent of God is that Jerusalem, but indeed all cities, are to become a place of light. And that as we live into what it means to be a people of God, saved by God, renamed and restored, that we are people of joy. The city is to be a place of light, and the people are to be a people of joy. 
And in our day, we can continue to experience that because Jesus is the fulfillment of verse 11 in this chapter. If this passage sounds vaguely familiar to you, we sometimes read this on Christmas Day. So you might see some resonance there with what you might hear. It's one of the alternative readings on Christmas uh, because of the way it talks about preparing the way for the Lord and because of verse 11. Jesus is the salvation that comes. We know that now. Um, And what this passage um, reminds me is that, you know, in my early days of faith, in the days that I was trying to figure out what it meant to follow Jesus, um, mostly what I understood salvation to be was that it was just about me and God. And it took that early experience of going to Young Street Missions Evergreen to expand my understanding, and then I keep growing in that way, that the gospel, the good news of Christ, is actually um, not just about how I relate to God, but God's intention for the redemption of the whole world. The people that I am scared of and I cross the street to avoid, God's intention is to redeem them and actually to redeem the street so that everybody can walk down it peaceably. Now, it delights me that this congregation now is in a period of discernment around neighborhood engagement. And so I am praying with you for this process as you determine what it is as a group and possibly individuals, how you can engage in your neighborhood. Because in Jesus, you and I are called to be the holy people. And in Jesus, you and I are called to be the redeemed of the Lord. We are called and we are sought out. And together, With God renaming us and restoring us, this city, Toronto, can become a burning torch, light for the world, and become known as a city not forsaken. Amen and amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.